good. We're recording. We are. Okay, let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer as we look at Hebrews chapter two. Mike, would you start us if you would? Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for this uh, this morning together, Lord. Thank you for your word and your grace and your love. Thank you for learned men uh, that you've brought to our church here. Um, who have a heart for unpacking and, and uh, digging into your, your work to God. Be with us, Lord. May our hearts be open and uh, what's learned today applied to our lives that we might give you more glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So that's on? That's, that's on. on. Learned men. Wow. <laughs> I feel like a learned man. Yes, I usually you. read other people's things. <laughs> that's how I learn. <laughs> but, you know, that's how everybody learns, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And please bear with me. My breath is short. I've had a summer cold for about two weeks and a very weak, so I'm going to be hanging on the pulpit and and uh, trying to just breathe. So, And I'm, if I'm not, I don't have a loud voice usually, but if, I, if I'm not loud enough, please tell me. So thank you for your patience. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. 1 through 4, Randy finished up chapter 1 last week, of course, a tremendous chapter. And so we're going to read about a word of warning. Mm. And um, we'd like to read chapter 2, 1 through 4. Anybody have their Bible ready to read? I'll read. Go ahead. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Correct. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Amen. Thank you. This power pack there. Um... So this is the first warning in the book of Hebrews with the six warnings. You know, as we know a little bit about the book of Hebrews, a warning to the Hebrew Christians to not fall back or to turn back to the old ways, um, the ways of the law, the commandments only, and disregarding Christ in his fullness. So the warning in my version says in verse 1, for this reason, or your, your Bible says, therefore... So, therefore, or for this reason. So, my first question to myself was, for this reason, what What reason? Mm-hmm. What's the reason? Well, the whole chapter 1 is the reason. Mm-hmm. And chapter 1 is all about how angels are, I should say, rather than them being inferior, Christ is superior to the angels. And we're going to see how important, why that's so important, that that chapter is based upon that and, and repeated so much and alluded to so much. So Christ is superior to the angels. We learn that from chapter 1. So now what? So it tells us in verse 1 as well, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Or lest we drift away from it. However, someone has drifted away or you could drift away. Um, Give heed means to take seriously to heart. That the Hebrew Christians wouldn't shrink back. You remember when Jesus talked about the gospel coming to the Jews and how, how did he say they would respond to it by saying 
between the old and the new, what did he say? What do they think like? The new is, the old is better. Remember, Jesus said that. The old is better. You, you remember that, right? No man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. Right. So the gospel is new, and they don't want to make new. You can't put, you know, it in the old wineskins. You need new wineskins, and they thought the old way was better. Mm-hmm. And what did, what did Israel think of in the wilderness once they got out into troubled times? The old way was better. Sometimes we think that way as Christians. So that's what we're talking about is a warning to not fall back uh, for whatever reason there may be. So when we became a Christian, all things became new. That included good things and difficult things, right? You experienced persecutions, friends, family, uh, maybe turning you away or causing drifts. You still have that today, I'm sure, with family, some unsafe family members and friends. So, he uses two phrases here that are, are shipping phrases, which they, they would have understood. Two shipping words. He said, um, pay much closer attention, which is actually, you know, the word give attention or the phrase give attention means to bring the ship to land. It means that once you set your course, the ship was to be brought to its end, not to change course or to uh, turn to the side. He said, now keep it. You've set your course, now keep it. He said, to what? To what we have heard. These are the gospel truths that are passed down. He said, lest, and here's another shipping word, lest we drift away from it. So, your ship has got its course, your navigation is, plan is done, you go, and then he says, but you're in danger, even on your course, of what? Drifting away. To drift away or to cause our own drifting. Um, it's not that the port is drifting from us, right? The truths of the gospel, the truths of fellowship with God, fellowship with God is not drifting from us. Who's drifting? It would be us. We drift. So, and there's no other, by the way, safe haven. You see, more shipping illusions when you there. There's nowhere to to go that's safe, like Peter said. It's interesting, later on, he says we have this hope as a steadfast anchor. That's right. Stole stole my thunder. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's exactly right. You're right. It doesn't mean anchored literally, but it means a a base or like a mooring, Mm -hmm. like a port. So it's not an anchor you throw in the water. It's more like you're putting your rope around a steadfast uh, pier or Mm -hmm. something. But very good. You're right. <clears throat> so lest we drift away on our own. So what causes us, take a minute or two, what causes us to drift away from our course, from uh, being a Christian and your things are going along? What can be some things? Well, James, James tells us that, you know, each man is drawn away by his own desires and intent. So the beginning of it is just, I think, the fleshful, sinful man is still alive. So we play with sin, maybe. We entice ourselves, right? We draw ourselves away. That's the drifting, right? I think when you lose the fear of the Lord, and, and, and life as a Christian seems very mm-hmm. casual, indifferent, you don't judge your sins, you ignore the scriptures, the commandments don't carry a lot of weight because the fear of the Lord has uh, escaped you mm-hmm. and you have substituted it with human wisdom or human thinking and it's... Uh, Right, and it just keeps you in a 
dull, indifferent state. Amen. Amen. Mark.
doing sermons or studies mm-hmm. is not fellowshipping with God. That's a good point. Mm. But our minds can sometimes forget that, mm. that we are learning from the Lord and dwelling mm. with God. Sometimes we worry just about the actual event. Another thing is relationships, and this is hard to take. Relationships mm-hmm. can cause us to drift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes unsaved families that we uh, want to lo- we love and want to care for, but cause us to drift away, uh, or even other believers as well. Sometimes uh, relationships do. Jesus said, it's a hard, hard saying, when he said, whoever would be his disciple must hate his mother and father, hate his wife, his children, yea, even his own life. What he meant by that wasn't hate like hate your guts like we think of hate. It means to, to reject or not reject even, but it means to place secondary yes. to him. So, But that's a powerful word, to hate. Uh, but it does mean a strong thing. We are not to put our family above God, and that's tough to, to take. So that's how we drift. Then, and also another one is age. I had it since I'm so young, right? Age. We get older. We start thinking retirement, right? That's what I'd like to think, but um, <laughs> retirement, we've got a, a portfolio if you're blessed and starting to think about age and, and retiring and whatever you might do, move or get another house or something, so you try to tone down your life, you know. It's just a temptation, that's all to remember. All right, so verse number two, he says, for if the word, now, so we can't drift away, be careful, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, he says, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. So, every, he said, the word spoken through angels. That's a fascinating passage here. The word spoken through angels. Now, the word for word doesn't mean just a word. It means the whole teaching. The whole scope of the, the law, for instance. Um, the Ten Commandments are often called in Hebrew, what? The Ten Anybody know? Words. words. Ten words. Not just a word, but a statement, a teaching. So when he's saying here the word in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 2, if the word or the teachings from God, from Sinai, the law, the whole law, spoken through angels was unalterable, every transgression disobedience just received a just recompense, he's going to say, how can we escape ourselves? But first, verse 2. Uh, the word was valid legally, like it, it had full validity. It's a legal word, which uh, means to be legally binding, that it was unalterable. Every transgression had its consequence. But what's fascinating here is angels. I don't remember reading anywhere about angels on Sinai. Do you? Isn't that fascinating? You ever wonder about that? That verse always, like, I wondered about that. Angels gave the law. The law came through angels? I don't know. I didn't, I'm not disagreeing with Scripture. You're going to find out Scripture is accurate, of course. I just thought it was fascinating that we don't read about angels giving the law or validating the law, but they did. There's other Scriptures to back that up, Gary. I think maybe Galatians 3 addresses that. Exactly. 319. Are you going to turn to it? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, you want me to do the first ones first? That's going to be the last verse because I'm going to start with some Old Testament first. Very good, though. Very good. You were right on. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, Moses said, He, the Lord, Moses said, He, the Lord, came from Sinai and dawned upon Seir, upon us, 
he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from ten thousand, from the ten thousands of holy ones, with flaming fire at his right hand. He came from Sinai through Seir. He follows them. In other words, he guides them. He directs his people. But the angels were with him, and the angels came from Sinai with God. Tony. Wow, excellent. Very good. I didn't have that. What's that again? Okay, because I have another passage in Acts 7, but very good. Psalm 68:17 says, The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into a sanctuary. So with the multitude of heavenly hosts, tens of thousands of thousands, he has come to Sinai in the sanctuary. And then Acts 7.53, Tony had read an earlier verse. You who have received the law that was given through angels, Stephen, this is Stephen talking. You've received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. The law was through angels, and then Gary said, Galatians 3.19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, Moses. The law was given through angels, which means ordinances of angels. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah, it's interesting that the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, right? Right, that's right. I mean, the, the law was given through angels. I mean, I wonder what they thought. Amen. No, as a matter of fact, it's just, that's what I wanted to touch on. For us as well, we're not Sadducees, but we as Christians can sometimes forget uh, the angels, the power, the openly active uh, ministries they have. Sometimes our upbringings as a Christian in America, and, and, and in 2000, you know, that we don't see angels as important. We have Christ, and that's true. So we look at Christ and we're content. But if you want to understand chapter 1 of Hebrews... What, why does Hebrews chapter 1... This is what I always just think as a young believer. Who cares about angels? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm being with respect here. Chapter 1 mentions angels 11 times. Why? We, don't, we know Christ is superior to the angels. We do. So why is it mentioned so much? Why does he have to bring this topic up? Must be a reason, right? It's because the Jews saw the angels a lot different than we do. Or did. They gave... Too much, maybe, like Randy was saying. Too much power to angels. Well, but there's a lot there in Scripture, which we sometimes forget. I'd like us to get reacquainted. But, Gary, what were you going to say? Well, I'm just going to address something that Pat mentioned, how surprised he was that the Sadducees, when the Scriptures are so emphatic about angelic uh, uh, communications and, and whatnot, Jesus said specifically to the Sadducees, you do earn not knowing the Scriptures. Right nor the power of God. So, as, as uh, religious as they were and as, as high of a uh, leadership category they fill, Jesus chooses them of being ignorant of the Word. Right. Well, they denied resurrection. They were your anti-supernaturalist, kind of like we mm. got today. Mm. People that don't want to acknowledge. Thomas Jefferson, you ever hear of the Jeffersonian New Testament? Oh, yeah. He's a mess. He cut out all the miracles out of it and cut out anything miraculous and powerful. He just, he just didn't like that. Or didn't agree with it, I guess. Brilliant man, Thomas Jefferson. Brilliant man, but... That's what Rudolf Bultmann did as yeah. well. He 
demythologize the Bible by claiming that you know it, it was just for the imaginations of the uh, first century <coughs> audience that they weren't these weren't true stories they weren't <coughs> realities and we need to demythologize the Bible Sad. to make it applicable for us who are in a post know. you know you could say yeah. uh, uh, naive state helping us out Mark Right, I know. What do you leave out, you know? That's what I say. If, if you take that out, then how do we know Christ existed? How do we know any of that? It's a good point. All right, so we want to look at the Judaistic mind and theology of, of what we call angelology. Not too deep, just to briefly go over it. But the study of angels and the, pertinent, the importance of angels and their pertinence in the Old Testament and New, by the way, just to get reacquainted, sometimes we skip over these things. How they deal, the enormity of their ministries, their interactions in the affairs of men, their interactions in the affairs of Israel, of the church, of Jesus Christ, and even today. And Jesus spoke a lot about angels himself. So, we want to look at, um, look at some of these things. Two reasons why I want to look at this. One, two reasons to look at angels briefly. One, because we want to see the greatness of angels again. Not only to see the greatness of angels, to boast of them, but to see the program that God has. And not to forget that angels are highly, highly involved. See, before, the, before Jesus, the Jews didn't have the Messiah to look at, to learn from, to, to honor, to worship, to, to behold. What did they have? Prophets, judges, rulers, kings. Um, they had God. They had his spirit to some. His spirit to some that were the anointed kings and rulers and prophets and things like that. But who who did they have? Angels. Angels did so much, and they trusted angels, and they sometimes worshipped wrongly. Angels. Angels were seen in a high high status, even in Jesus' day and beyond. Even today, in unbelieving Israel, angels are seen much higher than we do. So my point is, see the greatness of angels. But the second point is to see the greatness now of Christ. So now you know why chapter 1 was written. Because when you see the way that angels were looked upon by Jews in Jewish history, for them to say Christ is superior to the angels, that's like, wow. You and I say, angels? That's not, not that nothing, but I mean, Christ is great. But they saw the angels as ma, um, seraphim. Cherubim, archangels, angels, tens of thousands, death angels, every kind of angel, uh, majestics, over the mercy seat. So when they saw Christ as being superior, that meant a lot more to them. That's that's what the author was using here to get them to be solid with Christ is to say it's greater than the angels, people, and they were really astounded at that. So we're used to the Old Testament, you know, Daniel. Michael the Archangel and even Gabriel but uh, in the New Testament angels are so prevalent if you remember in the book of Jude remember the, uh, the book of Enoch is mentioned which is we don't consider biblical and I'm going to use a little extra biblical sources here as well as biblical uh, but the book of Enoch was considered scripture by Jews it's two parts one was earlier one later on after Jesus part of it the book of Watchers about angels and the book of Genesis what angels did 
which was the book, the book of Enoch was recognized by early Christians. I'm not saying it's true. It's not biblical. It's not in a canon. But it was recognized by Christians as many, by, as scripture. Spoke a lot about supernatural, about angels. In any case, um, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 5, he was about to be arrested. He said, don't you know that I could call my father now and he would send me more than 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion in the Roman army could be, it's, it's kind of different, but let's say, um, it's just like 6,000, 4,500 to 6,000 was a legion. So, 12 legions is 72,000 angels. And someone was saying, I thought it was quaint that they said, as Jesus is saying this, he's looking at 12 weak, wobbly apostles, and he's talking about 12 legions of angels. So he's okay. Jesus is all right. He can, he's in no trouble. But he didn't call them. 12 legions of angels. Look, look at Christ's recognition of angels. Uh, their ministers there of salvation. In Luke 15:10, he said that there's more, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why would we care if angels have joy over our repentance? Angels have joy. Jesus acknowledges the angels as giving them honor. See what he's doing? He's telling us that the angels rejoice in heaven. That's today. So even when people repent today, there's more joy in heaven and the angels just shouting and rejoicing over you. Angels are active today. Another time, um, Jesus speaks uh, in Luke twelve eight. He said, "Whoever de- denies me, uh, who, excuse me, whoever confesses me, uh, whoever confesses me, I will confess before the Father." No. What does he say? Before the angels of God. Isn't that amazing. Of course, before the Father. But see what he's saying. Luke twelve eight. Who, Jesus said, "Whoever confesses me." Before the angels of God... Uh, no, he says, Confesses me before men, I will confess before the angels of God. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before the angels of God. So the angels know who you are. The angels know who is a believer. They know who is not a believer. Remember, Jesus said, But the Lord knew who it was who did not believe in him from the beginning. The angels know and rejoice. Jesus said, I will confess them before the angels... And the angels must mean something because God the Son is willing to share with them who is his, who are his people. These are my bride. And they confess me and I'll confess them before these angels. His, his, go ahead, Mark. I'm just thinking they may have some level of autonomy so that if they understand who are Christians and who are not, right. then they may go into action Exactly. So I'm saying. So I'm saying they're very active. Um, Jesus even went so far as to say, and I looked this passage up a lot trying to, you know, pick it apart. I'm not trying to pick it apart, but he says, um, "Do not despise one of these little ones, right? Remember the kid children, because their angels in heaven always behold the face of my Father. They're angels." Now people say. Does every child have a guardian angel? I don't know. But I can't say they don't. Because when you keep reading this passage, it doesn't say like, oh yeah, we don't mean that. 
He's saying they're angels. But the point is, now, does that mean every child's not going to die? No, sadly, of course not. And we question, how come God lets that child die in a swimming pool or whatever? But the angels are guardians. Gary? I think the little ones that are referred to here are little ones who believe. That could be true. You know, so but he did have children in his midst, too. And, and, and it's a mistake for us to call little children angels. Um, and people don't understand that the Bible talks a lot about evil angels. Oh, I angels. see. <laughs> Not all yes. angels are good. Right. There are many that are evil. That's a good, good point. When they call a kid an angel, they say, what kind of angel? <laughs> <laughs> Which side? The devil was an angel. That's right. Good point. And we won't even really talk about him. He's one of the angels as well. Um, you remember that Paul was uh, discomforted. It says an angel stood by him. Book of Acts. Remember another time in the book of Acts? Peter, an angel came, led him out of prison, directed him out of the, into the city and opened a gate. The angel opened a gate so they could get out. They go to the house and Rhoda says, Peter's here. And they said, it must be his ghost. Now, what's interesting about that is that what they were saying in the belief of, the, of, of Jews in the time, that they believed that you still had a ghost when you died. So they thought Peter was dead, but his ghost showed up, or his angel. That's what they would call your angel. Tony, were you going to say something? Hmm. Right. 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 Sure. Amen. Amen. So, what should that give us confidence in? Right. Encouragement to think that the that the angels will honor us too. The angels are not jealous either of Christ or of us. They rejoice. Mark? I find it sort of mysterious that the Bible tells us that we judge angels. The wicked angels, most likely. Right. Because the good angels wouldn't be judged in the sense we have judged the of Christ, but not they're not being judged for they are. But you're right. The, the elect angels, matter of fact, we'll get to that. First Peter 5.21, Paul, here's interesting. Paul charges Timothy of his uh, ministry. He gives him his principles of ministry and he char- it says it charges him in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Isn't that amazing? Now it's not making the angels on equal footing with God the Father and God the Son but it's saying that Paul is saying to Timothy that I'm charging you to keep you the principles in the core of your ministry before the Father, the Son and the elect angels. Why would the elect angels be part of that uh, ordination service, so to speak. What do they elect? What do they elect unto? I mean, they don't inherit salvation, so they're the good ones. Right. So, and and their job would be to help Timothy, right? The elect. So he's Paul's charging their uh, charging them to go ahead and be true to the calling of God in front of God the Father, Son, and the elect angels, because the angels honor that. They will honor him, and they will help him at all. They help him as well. Um, 1 Peter 1.12 says that even angels long to look into these things. That's the redemption through Christ, our, our salvation. Angels long to look into these things. In Colossians 2.18, Paul
Paul talks about the Jewish believers or the infiltrators, I should say, maybe Jewish unbelievers. They claim to be believers. The trouble at the church of Colossians, there was some troubles. And these infiltrators would worship angels. Now we know why they would worship angels. Because angels were seen in high regard. So some of these Jews were worshiping angels. Paul said, knowing the importance of how they were seen, in Galatians 1.8, said, if we or an angel out of heaven preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. We would say, who cares if an angel preaches another? We don't care. But they, Paul knew the importance of angels. That if, if someone thought it was an angel out of heaven, then it's good enough for me. They would be willing to, to listen to that gospel. So the importance of angels uh, is what we were really trying to get at there. So by seeing that, I hope you understand now why chapter 1 is so pushing how Christ is superior to the angels because the mindset of that day saw angels different than what we do today. Gary? This is one of the angel reference that just comes to my mind. It's First Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men uh, or of angels. Right. So angels have apparently an angelic language that's not our language. Right. You know, angels angels pray. Well, and, and not in that language, but they actually prayed. I was going to tell you about the Jewish day. The Jewish uh, readings of today get to it here. Um, they were warriors, of course, you know that. But you know, in Jewish liturgy, even today it says, on returning home from services on a Friday night, on the eve of the Sabbath, at the dinner table before dinner Friday night, it's customary in Orthodox Judaism and conservative Judaism to greet one's guardian angels. So in Israel, they still say a prayer to their guardian angels. The prayer in the hymn goes like this, Peace be unto you, Malachi, which Malachi, the prophet, means messenger, which is where we get the word angel from. Peace be unto you, angels of the Most High, from the King of the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed is He. And before going to sleep, many Jews recite a traditional prayer naming the four archangels. Now, this is extra biblical. We have Michael and Gabriel, but they had Uriel and Raphael. Go ahead. What was that scripture? But th that's not Jew the scripture. That's what Jews do today. Sorry. Extra biblical is part of that. Um, but they, they believed in four archangels. Um, and again, that's just like a Catholic or, or other beliefs as well. But it's interesting that even today the Jews uh, feel that same way. All right, so back to verse 3 then of chapter 2 in Hebrews. Seeing that now, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard? So this, this great gospel that we know, he's saying, How shall we escape if we neglect these Jewish professors of faith? if they neglect this uh, gospel and salvation. Now, this isn't an ignorant rejection. This is a willful. They say that the phrase or the word here is the same as Jesus said when it said that a man would rudely or willfully reject a gracious invitation to a feast. That's rejecting. And unbelievers were among the Hebrew Christians. We know that. Rejection is unbelief. So now the writer in Hebrews is giving us three great reasons or Three great evidences that confirm the greatness of the message of salvation. Three witnesses would legally bind 
the matter, right? In the Old Testament. Three, three witnesses. So first of all, he says, how shall we escape, remember, if we neglect so great a salvation? The first witness is it was first spoken through the Lord. That's Jesus. Jesus spoke the message. Jesus preached the gospel. Therefore, it is to be, it's a confirmation. It's unalterable. It's to be received. Jesus himself spoke. Then he says, secondly, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now, we just, like Gary was saying, this kind of gives evidence that Paul was not the writer of Hebrews because you're already talking about a second generation almost, not the generation of people, but of believers. So you had Jesus, you had the apostles, the disciples of his day who heard him, and then you had others who, then they would tell others, and that's who this man is a part of. We heard from them. So this writer is saying that they heard from the original witnesses. So that's a, that's a testimony and a binding witness to them. And then there's transmissions that go down uh, in time. And, and we become witnesses and we transmit. We're part of transmission of the gospel 2,000 years later. But he's talking about the first Christians, the first disciples uh, who were saved. And then they, they confirmed it to those. I, I was looking up and I was kind of fascinated with um, early church fathers. I, lo- I love reading about them. Um, men that knew the Apostle John. They knew possibly Peter. Um, definitely John. You've maybe heard of Polycarp, that funny name. You don't want to name your son. Um, Ignatius. Polycarp lived and knew John. He was a disciple of John. He wrote. And that fascinating to know people that knew John. Now, John was there. John knew this. So he's not going to lie. Right? He's going to tell the truth. So Polycarp gets to learn from John. Ignatius was alive with them. And then Papias, who's probably one of the most famous guys you've never heard of, and so influential because Papias uh, was a Christian who knew John too. He was not a... They say he has writings. He wasn't per se a disciple of John, but he was a hearer of John. So he knew John the Apostle too. He knew of him and knew and heard him speak. So Papias was a man who had a, a writing, and it wasn't a gigantic book, but it was like an essay. We would call it like a documentary. And he tried to verify, not to prove Christianity, but to write down all that he could. This, this is great. This is like being back on the Mayflower, only better. And he got to write down all the things that he could, and he knew these people alive at the same time. And, and so he said, I want to write these things down, not because I don't believe them, but because I want to have the witness of people who saw, heard, and know firsthand. So he wrote a documentary and an essay where he spoke to John. It's believed he had some interaction with Peter. And, and get this, the five daughters of Philip the evangelist. Now that's his writing. I'm not saying it's a fact, but it's his book. It's his writing. And he talked to as many Christians that he could that were still, that were still alive that had heard Christ personally. Wow, what a fascinating event that is. Papias. And they say that he was one of the ones who, if you look at him, he's not a scholar per se, but that he was the one that had heard and read the, the earliest epistles and started to form them into a type of canon. He, he's, he had a sort of a rough forerunner of the Muratorian canon, which was one of the first canons putting together what we know as the New Testament. So Papias, read about Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S, fascinating stories. Polycarp, Ignatius, there aren't many, 
But there's several that knew John, spoke to John, passed it on. It's quite fascinating. Give you uh, more confidence, not that you need it, but encouragement as well. So those are the men that confirmed it. And then thirdly, um, it says here that the Lord God, in verse 4, the God also bearing witness with them by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God the Father confirms it. So what are we seeing here? A little allusion to the Trinity, right? Jesus spoke the word. That's the Son of God, the Lord. Two, God the Father bears witness. Three, the Holy Spirit distributes gifts. So this is the Trinity being alluded to there, by the way. God, so God the Father worked the miracles through Christ by the Holy Spirit. The executor of the Godhead. And then, just to, as we conclude, within those... Within that last verse, four, those those are split up into three as well. Signs and wonders. Signs, wonders, and various miracles. So you ever hear signs and wonders and it sounds strange because that's usually John Wimber or charismatic or something like that. But, but signs is an important word because John's gospel, you're familiar with, has how many miracles? Public miracles. Seven which is, again, I love numbers. Fascinating. And all of the miracles in John's Gospel are called sign miracles. And the reason why they're signs, man, uh, that was born blind, because they were not just a miracle, but to teach a lesson, specifically. John's Gospel, as you know, is unique, right, from the synoptic, so to speak. So signs meant to be something which taught something. So Jesus' miracles not only were great things that helped people, but they were signs. And then, secondly, there was also wonders. Wonders meant something which was marvelous, which no man could reproduce. Like some people try to, you know, Benny Hinn, they stretch the arm out or, you know, they do something. But that can be reproduced. We can reproduce Benny Hinn. We can swing a coat and people can fall down and... We can reproduce that, but true wonders cannot be reproduced by men. Unless they're of God. Gary? You know, since you're an expert, brother, on, <laughs> on second century Christianity... Uh-oh. No, I'm not. Uh, no, don't be so humble. Go ahead. Uh, could you tell us about the um, subsiding... Oh, the, the cessationism. Gifts? Like, when did the, when did the miraculous... If, if not cease, at least subside. Very good point. I had a little of that at the end here, and I think we got a, a minute or two we can talk about that. Sure. You're right. Cessationism. Yeah, we got time. Very good, brother. Um, to, to see, um, when did this, did what cease? What were you saying then? What would they say ceased? The, what? What ceased at the end of the first century, the argument is you were saying? Miraculous. Like the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Gifts of the Holy Spirit? the signs and wonders that's referred to there if the gospel was confirmed by signs and wonders right, right. Did, the, did the early church have the loss of those okay. signs and wonders after the first century but you know what no one today I doubt we Christians would deny miracles happen today right but what, what you're saying is referring to these specific acts that were in commonplace in the time of the apostles and maybe beyond like like raising the dead and a handkerchief that can heal people and and uh, raise you know and, and making the blind see those types of signs and wonders you're saying did they cease or are they today in other words 
the charismatic movement today claims to speak in tongues, uh, words of knowledge, prophecies, things like this. Are they in, are they active today, or did they cease? And that's a that's the question. Cessationism is what it's called. The belief that those gifts, the specific ministries of the Holy Spirit to the church, the gifts given, and there's a whole you know tons of them given in First Corinthians and other passages. Romans talks about gifts, some gifts. What do you think? Go ahead. And where's your evidence, by the way? Randy, you were going to say. <laughs> I thought you had your hand up. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were ready to go. If they ceased, how do you know they ceased? Anybody? I feel like reading missionary biographies, you see them again and again and again wherever the gospel is preached. I feel like we in our culture are so over sensationalized that it's not we're not going to see that so we would see nothing we would see very little right but you know you go into Papua New Guinea and you read some of the, the stories of the missionaries that are right. sharing the gospel there there are plenty of them and people that didn't know any better either so they couldn't have you know maybe concocted it because they wouldn't have known this was happening that's a, that's a good point I've read a lot of that to myself that possibly where new works are taking place where the gospel has never been God seems to confirm it with signs. Maybe not exactly like the book of Acts and, and other things, but you're right. But I believe miracles are today, right? What, what's the closest thing we have to working miracles today? People being born again. Amen. That's very good. That's probably better than mine. Uh, how about the medical world? Is that what you're yep. Of? yep. That's possible. Anything. I'm asking. What, what's the closest thing we have to miracles? Here's, my, here's what I came up with. A baby being born. Huh? A baby being born. Right. Well, I'm talking spiritual, though. But you're right. These are all miracles. Prayer. Prayer. Right? Prayer. Your prayers can bring about miracles. How many answers to prayer have you had that you could tell us right now? Right, Randy? You shared one. Or a miracle that happened to you from a tree, but uh, a chainsaw, which didn't injure you. Possibly the angels protecting you there. But what about uh, Prayer. We pray, God gives answers that are often miraculous. This prayers you prayed that if you never prayed them, wouldn't have happened. So that's a miracle. So we believe in miracles. We're just not saying that we have to have all these sign gifts like in line. Now, Gary's asking, did they cease? Specifically, if you look at evidence, um, but like you're saying about them happening in new places, I don't know. I don't. That's a good. That's a good point. I can tell you this though. From the early church fathers, and again, there's, they can debate it, they seem to say they experienced less and less miracles as time went on. It's written by many men. But, it's, but they went up for quite a while. Even Augustine talked about them. Uh, not in existence at his time that he knew of. There was, might have been a couple that said they were, but most of them would say that by 260 A.D., that... Uh, they were not really in existence. That the miracles that we see in the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, Romans, that these were not in effect in the churches at a large portion. Why would that be then? Why? What, what can you get for biblical argument of why the gifts might cease? Because we started to get the word circulated. Okay, so the scripture started to be circulated. Anybody else? God wanted them to cease. Because what, why were they given in the first place? What was, what was the historic moment? What was happening? Birth of the church. Right? The church is built upon the, the Christ cornerstone with the 
foundation, the apostles and the prophets as foundations of the corners of the foundation of the church. Good, Ken? You're saying the miracles just by apostles or by Christ? Because if, if Christ started at the, at, at the wedding, where it says that's his first of many miracles, right. that the miracles happened to glorify him. So they continued on with the apostles right. to continue the glorification of Right. But the argument here would be from these fathers and today, Christ started them. Well, of course, God started them. Old Testament has always been miracles from his people. Uh, Christ passed on the apostles. He said, greater works than these shall you do. When the apostles died, that the, and there's no more apostles that saw Christ, witnessed Christ, were fellowshipping with him, that then the miracles started to die off because the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus as a cornerstone. So once the foundation is laid and you build a house, what do you do after that? The foundation's all set. Right? So the gifts, like Acts 2 and Pentecost, as tongues were languages known to men of the day, languages of the country, as a sign to them that there was a gospel for the world. So the argument would be that the, these gifts weren't needed, these sign gifts like tongues, uh, word of knowledge, uh, prophecies per se, specific words... Um, interpretation of the tongues that these weren't needed as a large scale going on in the Christian body throughout the world because they were started out for a reason of uh, evidence and a witness see what I'm trying to say and that's, and that's why they ceased because God so, so what we're saying is God and the Holy Spirit let them dwindle down because cause he, don't forget we forget this even charismatics forget this the Holy Spirit is the author of these things he's the power behind them He's the distributor, not you and me. So if the Holy Spirit takes, a, lets the power decline from these specific gifts, because we have Scripture, like Jonathan said, um, we have the foundation of the church now laid, and we have, we have elders, deacons, we have rule of government now set up, so now we go forward and these things dwindle because their purpose is now fulfilled. Uh, a good example of this sort of subsiding of the miraculous is witnessed in the Old Testament. Like you find Moses Periods. crossing the Red Sea and, and uh, the plagues and right. you know, manna from heaven, the striking of the rock. And then it seems to go up to the period of Elijah right. and Elisha. Right. And then there's a lapse yes. of the overt miraculous right. until really the coming of Christ. Right. They say those three great periods of history of miracles to God's people are based are usually around this is opinion of a great turning of direction like with Moses you know coming out of um, coming out of the Egypt that's a huge turn you know coming out of Egypt into their own land that's a gigantic turn of history Elijah a little different but showing in Elisha showing great miracles because Israel is turning away from God and preparing for you know exile and things like this so it's a big part of the history because after Israel went into captivity and came back, they were never the same, really. Never the same. Till Christ. So now Christ comes, and there's a huge influx of miracles and power again. Why? Because there's a new, huge direction about to take place. It's called the New Covenant. It's called the, the fulfilling of the old and the beginning of the new, and now it goes forward. And that's probably why the gifts, or these miracles, per se, would die out, because it has been set in place. So that's the three major times. Garrett? I have a question. Um, 
but it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so, what's the word there? Great. Great. Other translations, great or greater. What do you have, verse 3? Great. Great. What translation? Give me a numerical standard or... Yeah, greater. Or, excuse me, uh, so great. Is it great or greater? Well, the NASB says great. Just says great, not greater. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Does it say greater you're meaning in some versions? I can't remember the word as I was looking up what it was the original. Oh, oh. Or even if it's great, is it greater than the salvation of the Old Testament? Yes. Because it's confirmed by these three witnesses after that. Confirmed by the Lord who spoke it, who's greater than the old, the law, who fulfills the law. So it's confirmed by him, so it's greater. So was, was people in the Old Testament saved in a lesser fashion, right. salvifically, than New Testament right. people? That's yeah. A fa- yeah, that's yeah. Christ's same thing. I'm working on a sermon for that. <laughs> I, I, are they, were they saved by what? Outside of faith? No, in other words, it's, it's Hebrews 2 3 indicating that the salvation of the New Testament people of God is greater than the salvation of the Old Testament right. people of God. I think, I think it's referring to the greater witness right. of the salvation that came with Christ and in Christ. Right. And the miracles and all that that came to the church as well. Because how. witness than actually the Old Covenant. Right. It's a greater, a more powerful sign. But how were the people in the Old Testament saved? By take going to the altar? By putting their pigeon or giving their fellowship offerings? Or how were they saved? How were the Old Testament people saved? Definitely greater in the New because once you receive the Holy Spirit, you can't lose it. Where in the Old, you see it placed on them and it's not taken away. Right. But it was always... It was always the... It's, I, I like to ask people, which came first? The New Covenant or the Old Covenant? The new. Because if you go back to Genesis and you read Abraham, that's when he says, uh, that's what Paul quotes in Galatians talking about the new covenant came first. Was faith. Faith alone. Then the old covenant came to start the process of the progressive revelation of God to babes, so to speak, till they came of age. But the idea of faith alone was always in this Old Testament, Right? The works were, Paul says a fascinating thing. He says, what did the law come for? What did it do? To show sin. It didn't come to save anybody. It came to show what a sinner you are. How you can't be helped. That's why you need grace. That's why it has to be. And it was Habakkuk. Who, isn't it quoted twice in the New Testament? The just shall live by faith. That's Old Testament. So it's always been faith. Anybody else? I just have one thing. Go ahead, John. Roll it back to the miracle thing. I don't remember why I read it, but I thought this was interesting. They were saying that if you looked at the Old Testament and if you added up the years of like the, when their miracles were going on, with like Elijah and Moses and all that, right. it would only be like 100 years. Wow. So, you know, people put so much emphasis on that, right. but it's just a small, right. tiny percentage of, of all of time. Right. Amen. And like I said, it was usually a transitional period of their history, which was very short in duration, like you said, mm-hmm. but a turning point nonetheless. Which is why it fits that it would be seen in the 